0: This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Citrix, the digital workspace company.
1: You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Headspace CEO
2: Cece Morkin and other leaders joined the Post to discuss how digital tools are helping people achieve wellness at work. Let's listen.
3: Good afternoon and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Francis Steed Sellers, a senior writer at the Washington Post. It gives me great pleasure today to start today's program with two leaders from a company at the vanguard of wellness tech. It's the meditation app Headspace. Joining me today are CEO CeCe Morkin and Chief Science and Strategy Officer Megan Jones-Bell. A very warm welcome to you both.
4: Thank you for having us, Francis. We're delighted to be here. Yes, thank you.
3: Well, we're delighted to have you. Cece, maybe I can start with you and ask a little bit about the founding story of the company. We don't often think about mental health and startups in the same uh, mouthful. <laughs> um, tell us a little bit about the founding, about Andy uh, Puticum and his background as a meditation expert.
4: Yeah, I'd love to. You know, the magic year was about 10 years ago, 2010, and of course, founded by Andy and Rich Pearson in London. And, you know, when Andy was in his 20s, he traveled to Asia, to Asia to become a Buddhist monk, and then he was ordained in the Tibetan monastery in the Himalayas. And when he returned, you know, he wanted meditation to be accessible, relatable, um, and to deliver benefits to as many people as possible. So he started doing meditation clinics. And that's where he met his future business partner, Rich. And then in 2012, the first Headspace mobile app was launched. And to this day, our vision remains the same, which is to improve the health and happiness of the world.
3: Well, Megan, that's a great lead into you, because I'd love to know a little bit more
4: about the science behind
3: meditation and how it actually helps with anxiety and sleep and other functions that we suffer suffer over sometimes.
1: Absolutely. Well, there are at this point thousands of studies that are evaluating the efficacy of meditation and mindfulness practices more generally. And whether it's by reducing stress, improving sleep, increasing focus or reducing job related burnout and improving relationships, research consistently shows that mindfulness works for a variety of different outcomes and different age groups and populations. And um, oh. neuroscience,
3: oh go ahead. No, I was just gonna say, just define mindfulness for us before you go ahead, if you can. I know people think of it in different ways and, and tell us what headspace means by mindfulness.
1: Well, there's a distinction, as you know, between meditation, which is this formal practice of cultivating awareness and compassion, really training yourself in this ability to be present without judgment. Mindfulness is actually generalizing that quality of being aware and being present and carrying that with you throughout your day and all that you do in your life. So it's really this distinction of the training, which is meditation, and this quality of being present, which is mindfulness.
3: And I didn't mean to interrupt you, but you were beginning to talk about the neuroscience. So just give us a little bit more about that.
1: Absolutely, well, I wanted to talk a little bit about the mechanism of why do we see these effects on stress, burnout, anxiety, and it's really because what is distinct about meditation training is that it's actually rewiring your brain. Neuroscientists talk about neuroplasticity, which is really your brain's ability to adapt, create new connections and change. Mindfulness enhances neuroplasticity. We also see that um, effect our genes. One of our research collaborators, Alyssa Apple at UCSF, and Dr. Elizabeth Blackburn have shown that meditation actually impacts telomere length, which is uh, sh- showing that meditation may slow the effects of aging. So this is a powerful. Um, it's it's different than relaxation. It really has a different mechanism by which you experience these benefits.
3: And telomeres are right at the end of the, the cells, right? These these parts at the end of the cells that uh, that shorten with aging.
1: Exactly,
4: Cece. Do you use Mindspace, uh, Headspace? Of course, I use Headspace. Yes, very much so. I use it. Uh, uh, I use it both for meditation, but I also use it to be more mindful uh, when I eat, when I uh, work out, and I certainly use our sleep content. So, in
3: some ways, one of the things that that I need. To get away from when I'm feeling stressed is my electronic devices. So it seems sort of counterintuitive to turn to them uh, for relaxation and to de-stress. Tell us how those two, uh, those, as I said, counterintuitive uh, proposals work together.
4: It's a great question, Megan. Do you want to take that first, and then I can add on to it? Sure. So you know, we actually did a, a
1: research study um, with about 900 participants, randomized to three conditions. This was done by an outside academic researcher. And we actually demonstrated that by using Headspace, it reduced uh, compulsive internet use. That's the more technical research term, but basically showing that meditation, this training and your ability to be present and aware puts you in a better position to understand and more actively choose how you engage with technology. And so we believe that you know, technology can be used to enhance health and promote health, or it can be used to detract from it, And that it's through training your yourself and being able to tune in to how you feel when you engage it with technology in a particular way, it actually puts you in the driver's seat over your health. And so you can make more informed choices that then, of course, impact how you feel. And so that's what we've seen um, play out in research. And, and that's really, for us using the phone apps is just a way of bringing this incredible technique to massive scale and putting it in people's pockets when they need
3: it. Did you want to add to that, Cece?
4: No. The, well, the only thing is she did a great job, so I don't really have much to add to it. But the only other thing that we've done is also start to introduce off-platform uh, content. So, you know, if you may have heard of our Netflix series as an example of ways that we're Um, giving people um, a methodology to do it without it necessarily being in the app and also a way to expand awareness. Yeah, we just saw a clip of one of those. Is that right? Yes, you did.
3: So what sets Headspace apart from many other meditation apps? Is it these sorts of developments to go into other areas like Netflix? Or how are you branding yourself differently from the other competitors out there?
4: You know, if I if I think about um, the things that make us different, that we that we believe make us different, I think there's probably three key areas, and um, at the very center of it is our team. Um, So, you know, our vision, which I mentioned earlier, to improve the health and happiness of the world, is what our team 100% focuses on. It's a very purpose driven organization. People really care about the impact we make, and so therefore. Uh, As we go about developing the content and the experience for members on our platform, everybody is very focused on did we deliver the benefit the person came to us to join. And yesterday I had an opportunity to meet with our new employees, uh, the February New Employee Group. And when I asked them, why did you join Headspace? Uh, 100% of them said, because uh, I want to make a, a a difference in the world, and Headspace is a purpose-driven company. The second reason I would say is, is highlighting what Megan just talked about, which is um, what we refer to as credible expertise backed by science. And Megan talked about the science, which is super important to us, uh, but it also includes you know Andy's background in meditation from a process that's been out there for 3,000 years, On top of which, any of the experts that we bring into our application um, are vetted and curated by us. So our movement or running uh, experience is through the Nike head coach, Bennett. John Legend is our uh, expert for focus music. Um, And this is just really, really important to us so that we stay true to that expertise. And the last, the third piece that I would say that differentiates us is our content. So it is in service to delivering on our strategy to build healthy routines that last a lifetime. And our content goes from sunrise to sunset. And I mentioned a little bit of of that when I talked about how I use it, but we're there when you wake up. In fact, we greet you with the wake up. We're there for you when you meditate, how you eat, how you move, um, how you go to sleep at night, how you deal with the things that come up during the day. Both context during the day, daily stress and anxiety, panic, burnout, or even external factors. You know, we have content around COVID, we have content around doing a job interview, work, dealing with kids, even dealing with politics, and they're all delivered as teachable moments for these daily activities. That brings me very much to a question that's been on my mind about the
3: pandemic. You've grown enormously during this uh, past 24, past 12 months. Um, how tell, Take us through the journey of Headspace through the pandemic and
4: how you have adapted to it, both within your company and for the people who um, use you. Yeah, yeah, it's a great it's a great question. Let me start first with what we had to do internally, because, of course, we were not immune to the pandemic and everything that went with it. And probably just like everyone, the biggest impact has been this uh Sometimes we say blurring of lines of our personal life and our work life. Sometimes I refer to it more as a collision that took place. And so we we made several changes as a company. And by the way, we actually share these uh, these changes with our enterprise clients in case it's helpful to them. But one of the things that we do is we practice what we preach. So we start all of our all hands, or we end all of our all hands with a meditation. And so this is just you know three to five minutes of us collectively getting focused together before we start into any content. Twice during the day, we have uh, no meeting blocks. Uh, so we have 30-minute segments where nobody can schedule meetings. And you know, if you want to join a group meditation, you can. If you just want to use it for yourself and get up and walk around and at least not be on Zoom, do whatever it is you need to do. Every other Friday now for us is a no meeting day. And then the corresponding Friday or alternative Friday is what we call a mind day. So it's just a day to take care of yourself. And we did both of those because we recognize that sometimes you just need a formal break. And unless we forced it as an organization, we were afraid that just meetings would occupy everyone's time. And frankly, especially with caregivers, you just don't have any time in the day to take care of yourself. We also started recording most of our meetings, so if you can't make one, that's fine. You can at least catch up by listening to the recording. Um, and then we we've also started to have our leaders show and speak to where they have stress. And the reason we do that is when people see leaders talking about their vulnerabilities, it just makes them feel that it's okay for them to have the same feelings and to raise their hand and ask for help. So that's kind of what we've done. Uh, internally. Externally, we've done several things. Um, and let me first talk about what we did to try to give back. You know, we made Headspace free and we continue to make it free for frontline workers, caregivers, uh, healthcare providers. We made it free for educators and we made it free for the unemployed. And I recognize that that just makes a small dent in some of the things that happened in 2020. Um, but then we saw. The behaviors change within our application. So we've seen about a 30% increase in the number of minutes that are spent in our app uh, on average. And this is mainly due to people using multiple types of sessions. And I gave you an example of the different types a few minutes ago. We saw the use of stress related content increase sixfold. We've seen sleep increase dramatically and probably Uh, The biggest impact we saw was the demand from the enterprise space or the B2B space where employers are now focused on making this available to their employees. And we've seen a 30 percent increase, a 300 percent increase year over year. So this includes big companies like Hewlett Packard and Tesco's
3: and Publix, correct?
4: Exactly, exactly.
3: Megan, I'd love you to describe a little bit how uh, Headspace for Work differs from how an average uh, consumer on their own might engage with your product.
1: Well, it's such an important question because when we implement Headspace for Work within uh, an employer context, we have so many additional levers that we can use to reach and engage um, employees. And so our, our offering to the workplace actually diverse, differs substantially. Of course, all employees and you know, dependents, if that's of interest to an employer, have access, full access to the app and all of its content, but they also get professional services that wrap around this experience, analytics that inform employers about you know, the nature of content, the types of topics that their employees are engaging with. Um, as well as a range of additional services, whether that is webinars or leadership development trainings that are mindfulness-based, but a whole host of other tools and customized materials that help employers really bring mindfulness into the culture of their organization, engage leadership, which we know is incredibly important at making a workplace um, health or wellness program successful, is really creating permission for employees to engage with it. And so we do a, a number of, of other things outside of the app that really help create the conditions for adoption, engagement, and really what I would describe as meaningful use of Headspace uh, in the workplace
3: drive into that a little bit more about what it means for these companies. Companies are are under great pressure now to diversify, provide different uh, wellness for different people with different backgrounds. How can you adapt to that? Is there a one size fits all approach for employees in one company or can you diversify within that company?
1: I think it's incredibly important to diversify. And so we we are doing that you know, in our core experience as well as in how we show up in the workplace. One of the things that we've done is we actually hired a director of content diversity and we've conducted a range of different uh, what we call design research studies, but really qualitative research where we interview um, and understand the needs of different populations um, with, with, you know, f- To whom we'd really like to customize our intervention and what that's resulted in is Headspace bringing in new teachers that are more relatable to people of other backgrounds. Um, We have created content that is more tailored to the needs of the BIPOC community as an example, Um, but we're trying to be more diverse and inclusive in what shows up in the Headspace content as well as then partner with our uh, with employers and and bringing that into the wraparound experiences um, that we conduct and and really when we think about the need for all of us to be more aware more empathetic more compassionate mindfulness is a great tool in the service of that
3: mental health coverage has been very bad in most employee uh, coverage insurance plans are you just leaping into that gap and uh filling a gap that's been a long-standing problem?
1: Well, we it sure has been a long-standing problem, I'd say. You know, having tried to sell workplace mental health solutions eight years ago and just tr- spent most of my time, you know, trying to convince employers that it was their responsibility to address mental health. Um, we are, that is, you know, really the need that we fit into. And as we think about mental health, it's important for us to define it more holistically, um, not in a siloed way as only referring to mental health disorders. And so where Headspace fits in is when an employer is seeking to implement a more comprehensive mental health offering for their employees and or their dependents, it's really important to invest upstream in mental health promoting and prevention oriented, which, you know, we can describe as wellness services, as well as access to high quality evidence-based clinical services. And that all fits together to create, you know, support for employees who are healthy, to stay healthy, to build resilience, to buffer them from the effects of stress or reduce the likelihood that they will develop a you know, anxiety, depression, or burnout, um, as well as, you know, the other side, ensure they have swift access to effective care. So it's been heartening to see that many employers are starting to take this more holistic view of mental health and invest in, you know, resources across that continuum.
3: Cece, as you do this, you are learning so much about individuals and about companies. You're grabbing an awful lot of data. What sort of uh, privacy, privacy uh, protections do you have in place?
4: Yeah, it's a great question. And, um, you know, we're very judicious about the data that we have access to. And we also, you know, take very seriously the compliance requirements for things like HIPAA and high trust um, and any of the data that we uh, have access to never leaves uh, our 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 sites and our locations, and the only thing that we even do with that data uh, is just improve the product offering to make sure that the experiences are actually delivering what the uh, what the member came to us to to solve. Uh, but but otherwise, we take that very very seriously.
3: And what are you learning about how different people respond? And I don't want to overgeneralize, but uh, a white woman uh, might respond very differently from a tech. Uh, Somebody working tech on the West Coast, I can think of all sorts of uh, different. Do some people want, you know, a quick speed through meditation and others want a a slower program? Are are you seeing patterns that develop?
1: I'm happy to take that. So we we do see patterns. I would say it's much more we've shifted to talking more about. Um, personas and behavioral archetypes, because we, when we pigeonhole people around, you know, race or geography, it doesn't really let us capture um, the, you know, personality or behavioral differences. And so that's our our team. You know, spends a lot of time trying to understand if our goal is to help our members create healthy routines around mindfulness, um, then how are we you know, tailoring our offering or creating more front doors into our offering so that people are guided and supported along that journey of improving, you know, creating those healthy routines with mindfulness. So we, we see that some people need a, are ready to come in, close their eyes, sit down and meditate, Other people might need uh, a little bit lighter of an approach. They're not ready to close their eyes and meditate, but they might be willing to take a walk and have a a mindful walk. And so, or they might be willing to do, you know, a workout that has a mindfulness component or fall asleep um, with a a mindfulness uh, kind of relaxation oriented content. And so for us, it's really how this materializes in our app is, is through trying to create these other front doors for people who may need to first start with understanding and experiencing what is it like to have mindfulness and run put together and then that may actually lead to them engaging in guided meditation which we know is really the most powerful um, part of our offering I'm
4: hoping just to build on that
3: an audience question you can take that and then we're getting close to the end of our time but let me pop an audience question to you. This is Jean Perry from California, who asks, what is the role of wellness apps in
4: supporting older adults who may be less tech literate? Cece, do you want to start with that one? Sure, sure. You know, I'm going to ask Megan to do it because she's the scientist here. And so I think that that would be most appreciated. Well, we actually just finished a study looking at
1: over 65-year-olds um, so that we can use that understanding to inform how we tailor our app accordingly. I think one of the, the things that we're seeing emerge through this pandemic is that older adults are becoming very tech-savvy. Um, they are getting the majority of their health care virtually, and so their ability to use an app um, really has enhanced One of the things that's unique about Headspace is it is audio based. Um, There are, of course, you know, videos and other modalities, but it's quite easy to use um, for an older adult because there aren't some of the same usability concerns that you would have in, in navigating more complex technology. One of the things that we really value is simplifying complexity and we take that to heart in designing the technology.
3: Thank you. And now one for you, Cece, about the future of of Headspace. This is Terry Kelly from New Hampshire who asks, do you have any plans to take Headspace into real life to offer retreats or other in-person meditation experiences?
4: It's It's a great question. And I would I'm going to go back to some of the off platform work that we are doing because that's currently how we're taking it off uh, outside of the app. And so I mentioned uh, Netflix. And so we've got three series that will be coming on Netflix. The first one is already out there. The second one will be coming at the end of April and we'll focus on sleep. And then we have a third one that we haven't yet announced the content for. We also show up, you know, for things to help children, like in Sesame Street, which is really exciting. We also show up in other people's platforms, So you'll see us in Starbucks now. You'll see us in Microsoft Teams, and so that's how we're branching outside of the app today. Um, You know, we started with in-person clinics originally, and we'll you know those are things we may continue to test and see. But right now, we find that we get the most access to the broadest range of people through you know various forms of digital media.
3: I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. But Cece and Megan, thank you so much for joining me.
4: Thank you for having us.
3: us. Well, it was delightful. Thank you. We learned a lot. And I will be back after a short break with uh, Erica Volini. She's Deloitte's global human capital leader.
0: The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event
4: sponsor. The Washington Post Newsroom was not involved in the production of this content.
5: I'm Kelly Collis. And today we're talking about the importance of employee wellness at work and the new technology that is enabling better physical and mental health in our workforce. Joining me for this discussion are Donna Kimmel, Chief People Officer at Citric, and Dr. Amit Sood, Executive Director of the Global Center for Resiliency and Well-Being. Dr. Sood, I want to start with you. How can technology play a role in our emotional health? That's
2: a great question, Kelly. Technology can both hurt and help our emotional well-being. A few use cases, good use cases. So my mother is 86 year old and she runs a global yoga class, connecting with her old friends and buddies and lots of people across the world. And she comes beaming after the class. It helps her with uplifting emotions. So technology helps us connect with each other. The second thing, it's, it's so peculiar about our brain that when you're doing some cognitive task, our brain gets tired in about 90 minutes or so. So we need a little bit of emotional snacks every 90 minutes or so. The technology provides a beautiful buffet of wonderful you know, apps and videos and um, uh, you know, good news and images and connection with people. So uh, technology is a wonderful source, uh, provides us access to uplifting emotions. Uh, so that's the second use case. The third use case, I don't know about you. When, when a donut is 100 feet away from me, I'm safe. But if a donut is one foot away from me, it's going to be part of my body. So self-regulation. So there are so many good apps and gadgets that help us with self-regulation about our nutrition and sleep and exercise and so on and finally one idea never change two passwords on the same day i did that and it was a disaster two important passwords so technology helps us with efficiency and productivity so those four use cases really help us with emotions connecting with others Uh, uh, giving us access to uplifting emotions, source of uplifting emotions, uh, helping us self-regulate. We know people who are self-regulated are happier and helping our productivity and efficiency.
5: Okay, Donna, now let's play uh, that to work. How can we embrace technology without letting it overwhelm us?
6: Yeah, you know, technology, I think, uh, as Dr. Sood was really alluding to, is one of our new co-workers now. And sometimes that co-worker can be really helpful to us, and sometimes not so much. You know, most of us are using a lot of apps, and um, and and uh, we've been able to show at least 11 apps a day that, that we're using. And we know that the context switching, going between from one app to another, really wears us down and increases uh, you know, our exhaustion and our anxiety. And the more we can streamline and integrate our technology, the better off we're going to be. We know that more and more apps out there are designed, and technology are designed to help us kick old bad, you know, bad habits and old ones, and really substitute them with newer, healthier ones. And it's these digital tools that definitely can improve uh, our well-being. Very similar to stand-up or sit-down desks um, or the ergonomic chairs that we use. We want to be able to provide technology. It really does prioritize employee experience and our work experience. It's really about helping us focus on what truly matters, that technology helping to minimize our distractions, uh, help us balance, to enable us to work more productively, and really support our overall well being.
5: I want to follow up with that, Donna, because it's clear that people rely on technology in their personal and their work lives. Nearly 50% of workers today are more likely to uh, use productivity and wellness apps than before the pandemic, according to a recent survey from the Washington Post Insights team and Citrix. Knowing that more of us are using this kind of technology and the app options are practically limitless, how should companies think about wellness apps that track health data, step, sleep, heart rate, in terms of privacy, productivity, and performance?
6: Yeah, it's a, you know, it's a great question and um, a great issue for us to really wrestle with. Uh, we know that tracking um, uh, tracking data, utilizing these tools, is a, truly a growing trend in organizations today, and the possibilities are really exciting and certainly go beyond um, uh, people being able to just you know move move around. We know that I can be alerted, you know, if my blood pressure my or my blood sugar is low, I can go grab a snack. Um, If I'm feeling agitated, I might get a little alert that tells me to maybe take a breath or postpone a meeting. But I think ultimately as all of this data gets collected, some critical elements that we really need to consider regarding the use of the technology, how we collect and monitor the data, the data privacy is all about using data responsibly. And when companies provide employees with the technology that monitors uh, and reports this data, We need to really ensure that we're complying not only with country and state privacy laws, but we're also clarifying what data gets collected, how that data gets used, and who gets to use it. But I can't stress enough that we absolutely have to use this data with integrity and with transparency, while ensuring that the data um, and the decisions that we're making aligns with our company values. I do challenge all of us to put people first and use data for good and not for surveillance. Leaders really can choose to use technology tracking that supports employee well-being and productivity, uh, and doing it from a growth mindset perspective, one that has a true, genuine uh, focus on improvement. Employees, uh, again, give employees the opportunity to access their data to enable them to increase their own self-awareness, to improve their wellness and their productivity. And once again, if these technologies are going to be sustainable inside of our workplace and you want to be able to build trust in your organization, it has to be from a supportive perspective, not a punitive perspective. So I challenge all of us to use data for good.
5: And just to wrap up, Dr. Sood, I want to ask you, when it comes to technology at work, what should companies keep, ditch and strive for in the coming months?
2: I'll talk about what we should keep. Three most important things at organizational level telehealth, telemental health, absolutely essential. Support with childcare, absolutely essential. Adaptation around flexibility and remote work, absolutely essential. When it comes to individual, my order of priority is uh, support with productivity and efficiency, connection with each other self-regulation, and finally, access to uplifting emotions and relaxation. So that would be my priority with respect to integrating, continuing to integrate technology.
5: Well, thank you both. That's all the time we have today. I'd like to
3: turn it over to The Washington Post.
2: And now, back to Washington Post
4: Live.
3: Hello and welcome to Washington Post Live. If you're just joining me, I'm Frances Steed Sellers, a senior writer at the Washington Post. We're talking today about the intersection of workplace and wellness technology. And joining me now is Erica Vellini. She's from Deloitte, where she's the global human capital leader. Welcome. Thank you for
0: having me, Francis. Great to be here.
3: Well, delighted to have you. Um, I'd like to start by talking right away about the pandemic. What are the big trends you're seeing in this field across the world?
0: Yeah, the pandemic has brought in many shifts, but we ran a survey back in December, our Deloitte Global Human Capital Trends Survey. And one of the biggest trends that we found is a shift around how organizations are viewing work. Before the pandemic, only 29% of business executives thought about work beyond what we call Uh, reengineering tweaking around the edges post pandemic that number skyrocketed to 61% of business executives saying that they want to focus on reimagining work on fundamentally opening up how we think about work moving forward how we're going to execute it who needs to be a part of it how we bring technology into it and how we make work better for humans. And that to me is the biggest fundamental shift that we're seeing. And it's so important because it comes against a backdrop of executives also realizing that disruption is here to stay. That in order to be prepared, they need a workforce that has the ability to adapt, reskill, and redeploy into new roles quickly. They need the ability for their organization to make rapid decisions, and they need the infrastructure, the culture and the work policies to be able to support all of that. So in in a nutshell, that's the big shift that we're really seeing in the human capital world.
3: And then jump into some specific examples for me, if you can, about how workplaces, how employers are investing in wellness for their employees.
0: Well first of all let's talk about the fact that our survey found that 80% we're talking about 9000 respondents around the world said that well-being is their number one priority it is the most important trend that they're facing today so it's certainly front and center and when we talk about well-being we have to take a holistic approach so we're talking about physical mental financial and social you know we're seeing organizations respond on all of those levers in the physical world We're seeing organizations put in stipends, helping workers invest in whether it's standing desks or walking desks or yoga balls or name your favorite tool, things that they need in their home to make their physical workspace work for them. Um, We're seeing increase in time off programs, whether that's unlimited time off, whether that's the ability to carry over time off, just making sure that people have that time that they need. Um, From a mental standpoint, huge investments here. We're seeing everything from new apps. You know, I think about apps like Calm that I used to see on the airplane when I traveled for work, which I no longer do. Um, You know, those consumer grade technologies are now being brought in. We're seeing use of EAP programs, employee assistant programs. We're seeing peer to peer uh, networks being set up to help employees so they could call and talk to a peer about how they're feeling. Um, and we're seeing a ton of work being done on sentiment analysis using data to understand in real time how workers are feeling and then producing actions on how to tackle when a worker isn't at the right mental well-being um, if we switch to financial child care elder care um, putting the financial resources in place helping workers think about how they could stay stable financially amongst all this economic instability. And then from a social standpoint, it all comes down to culture. How do we start to understand which workers are connecting and collaborating with one another? Which ones aren't? And what are the parts of your culture that you want to keep going? We've seen everything from virtual happy hours to the use of teams in innovative ways to new virtual technologies that are simulating workplace environments to give people a sense that they're having that social connection and interaction that they need. So that just gives you a flavor. But this is a huge issue, well-being. And enterprises are really looking at it from a multitude of ways.
3: And of course, part of well-being is knowing when you are not at work. Tell me a little bit about how com- what companies are doing to create those boundaries between work time and non-work time when they're moving into so many areas that one might have considered to be uh, free of work time.
0: It is so hard to your point in a virtual work environment. One of the the best stories that I thought I've, I've heard came out of Daimler. They have an app that they call Mail on Holiday. And this is just one small example where an employee can opt in and choose to have their emails deleted um, while they're on holiday just to separate that work from life. Now that's just a small example, but I think it points to this need to set those boundaries, and this is a great place where we can use technology because technology has the ability to allow you to shut off, um, to say this is time that I need that I that I absolutely need to preserve, and I think we've seen much more willingness from organizations to do that. I mean, for myself, just to make it personal, and this is. This is not very advanced in terms of technology, but I block my calendar during certain parts of the day because I have a two year old and I know that when my childcare is over, I need that time to focus um, and I need to on, on, on my son. And so I think enterprises are just supporting that more. They're asking questions proactively. We're seeing managers be educated on empathy, active listening the need to constantly check in with your workers. And then I mentioned sentiment analysis, understanding in real time how workers are feeling, but using data. You know, you could know how often, how many hours are being logged on video and then go back to that worker and say, okay, we need to create a little bit of separation for you because you might be heading in towards burnout or giving them that view. So those are some of the things that organizations can start to do to create that separation between work And life, and I don't think it has to be that complex. I think it starts with recognizing that each individual worker is different. It's not gonna be a one size fits all solution. So you need to understand your employees at a much deeper level. You need to create personalized solutions for them. You need to make sure you're communicating in a very transparent way. And this has to come all the way from the top. We've seen CEOs have a higher degree of transparency than we ever have before communicating that it's okay, sharing their personal stories to create the culture, that it's okay to talk about it, and it's okay to have to need a different way of interacting at work or doing your work given the circumstance we're in.
3: But So many of us work in, I work in a 24-7 newsroom, so many of us work in global organizations which have Mm -hmm. demands 24-7. How does that work? How do you catch up if you block out time? (laughs)
0: Oh, man, I wish I knew that answer. I just wish I, I knew and could give you that silver bullet. But I think it's about being deliberate. You know, I, I've talked to a lot of people have asked me this question. And one I talked about some of the shifts that we've seen, here's another shift, right? We have all gotten exposure to what's happening in our personal lives, because we're all on video, people are seeing what's happening. How do we take advantage of this moment of transparency to communicate what we need and to set different expectations, to be clear on outcomes. I think we're gonna see a real shift at work where it's not about, you know, how many hours I logged um, or what I'm tracking during the day. It's gonna be progress towards an outcome versus measuring my specific outputs. And that's a way in a 24 by seven world. I think you have to be allowed to focus on an outcome and design the way you're working for you. What works best for you to get it done? How do you uh, tap into the full resources of the organization, not just in your individual team to help get that work done? Um, How can you use technology? I mean, we talk about a concept called super teams as AI is coming more into the workplace in a meaningful way. How can you use those more advanced technologies to take on some of the work that you might have been doing that can be done by technology um, that will help you as a human worker be able to spend more time on things that are more meaningful, where you need to be thinking, you need to be emoting, you need to be relating to people, things that only humans but not technology can do. So those are some of the ways, but I think it starts with transparency. It starts with being clear on what you need and setting those boundaries and us all realizing we're in this together. One of the, if you could say there was a good thing about the pandemic, and I'm not sure you can, but if you can, it would be that we're all facing it together so we all know what the circumstance is. So
3: some companies like Salesforce are talking about keeping st- remaining with remote work. Others are talking about hybrid models. We know that during the pandemic, women have been particularly hard hit trying to manage caregiving and their work. How do you see managing those uh, challenges going ahead, particularly for women? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm a believer
0: that the hybrid workforce will stay. Um, it will. It will be in different forms depending on the organization. Um, there are always going to be need a need to come in and connect with people. And that's just human nature. I think we have to recognize that um, for women in particular. Again, it's about, it's a combination of things. One, I think we're having a much more meaningful conversation around childcare than we've ever had before. Childcare and elder care falls primarily to women. How do we make sure we're getting the support, whether it's financial, whether it's on-site support, how can we make sure that this becomes a bigger part of the dialogue? And then we, this goes back to this, everyone having different needs. We need to start to understand the needs of our different workforce segments. Right. We often don't think about it. We think about the workforce in individual contributors, managers, executives or some variation of that. We need to start segmenting our workforce and understanding specifically young mothers. What do they need? I would put myself in that category. Even though I'm an executive, I'm a young mother with a two year old. I'm going to have certain needs that need to be met. How do we start personalizing based on those individuals and saying, um, here's when office space could be available to you. You know, what else do you need? Do you need things at home to make your home environment easier? How do we customize the benefits that are available to you so you have that level of flexibility? What does your schedule need to be? Right? Is it easier for you to work in the mornings or the evenings? And let's build that into the way we're scheduling. Let's use this trend towards teams to put together teams that recognize individual circumstances. So maybe someone on my team is someone who has the ability to work between 3.30 and 6.30 when I need my time off to care for my son. And how do we create that balance by using some of the trends that we're seeing emerging in the workplace and the work right now? I do think it's an issue we have to pay attention to. Kamala Harris called it a national crisis, and I agree with her. We have too many women exiting the workforce right now, especially in the course of the pandemic. We need to start recognizing how this important segment of our workforce needs to change the environment to make it work for them.
3: Erica, one very quick question to finish up. I'm sorry we're running out of time, but we have an audience question I'd like to ask you. It's sure. Elliot Massing from California who asks, how are you currently supporting your employees' wellness today? What's working? Are there areas of potential improvement? And I'm sorry, it's a big question for a very little time, but have at it.
0: Yeah, it's a huge question. And I would say, first of all, let me be clear, we're always going to be improving. I mean, one of the things that organizations need to do is constantly adjust by listening and sensing to what's going on. What do I think we're doing well? We are constantly sensing how our employees are feeling. And understanding that and responding in real time, number one. Two, we're being incredibly transparent. I think about all of our executives across the firm, well-being is a front and center topic that all of us bring into every single meeting we have. So we're trying to create that culture of transparency. I think in terms of improvement, it's getting down to that segment level. It's understanding the different groups and how we can support them individually and helping to recognize who we are as individuals versus categorizing categorizing us by role or by generation or by location? Who are we as humans and what are our needs and how do we start customizing solutions to us?
3: Well, one of the words I'll take away from that discussion is transparency. I can see it's very, very important and understanding one another. Erica Villini, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. I'm sorry, we didn't have time for more. If you'd like to see any more programming coming up later this week, please go to WashingtonPostLive.com where you'll be able to register for upcoming events. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.